Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God of the universe, that you have purposes and plans for everyone within it, that you are a God of love and grace, holiness and justice. We praise you that we who fall far short of your glory, far short of the purposes for which we were made, are nevertheless welcome into your presence. We don't take that for granted and long that we might understand what it took to bring us to that place more deeply this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The great tennis player Arthur Ashe contracted HIV as a result of a blood transfusion. And some months before he died of an AIDS-related illness, uh, he uh, gave a press conference. And of course, he had uh, shot to fame. He uh, had been a Wimbledon champion uh, in 1975 and was a great hero for many. And he said this... um, In this press conference, he gave the conference partly to uh, uh, highlight the realities, the dangers, the issues related to HIV-AIDS. But he said this in the course of that press conference. Painful though it is to know that I have this dread disease, nothing could be as painful as the rejection I've endured throughout my life by virtue of my color. The late 1950s and 60s were, of course, a a turbulent time in America particularly. Uh, Debates over race, over slavery, over equality had actually festered like a sore in America long before uh, even the Declaration of Independence, let alone the American Civil War. This had been something that lay right at the heart of the, uh, the DNA, if you like, of this new forged country of America. And even though the slave-holding South was defeated during the Civil War, the plight of ex-slaves was not vastly improved. And during the Second World War, uh, many uh, uh, ex-slaves or those descended from slaves had been drafted into the US Army and fought on the battlefields of Europe and Asia. And uh, many African-Americans found that they had fought alongside the fellow white GIs and um, uh, came home and expected more. They'd been fighting for freedom, not least for the oppressed race of the Jews on the battlefields of Europe and went home to find themselves still an oppressed race. And the battles for civil rights had brewed for generations and churches were on the front lines, both for greater racial integration and, incredibly, against greater racial integration. And it's quite hard to believe. And so many people fought in all kinds of different ways during these turbulent decades for what was just. One historian summed up how the fundamentalists and sort of evangelicals in the Deep South argued against the civil rights movement. This is uh, from one paper I was reading. The civil rights movement was unacceptable to Southern fundamentalists for several reasons. First, it promoted a form of racial mingling, which undermined the God-ordained separation of the races and increased the possibility for racial intermarriage, which was a clear violation of biblical teaching. Secondly, it fostered social and political anarchy, as they saw it, which disturbed the social order and engendered violence, riots, and civil disobedience, a violation of biblical teaching on authority of the government. Third, at its best, it was a a tool of socialists and communists in their efforts to bring down American democracy. At worst, the movement itself was communist-inspired, an attempt to destroy the nation, a threat to Christian civilization and freedom. 
and forth. It was led by religious modernists, infidels, and apostates whose views on scripture, the virgin birth, and other fundamental dogmas made them enemies of true religion and genuine faith, a violation of biblical teaching. This is a summary of a vast range of preachers and teachers and theologians who were opposed to the civil rights movement. Let me give you just one example. A man called W.A. Criswell was the pastor of Dallas's First Baptist Church from 1944 to 1995. Uh, that was the largest congregation in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that was the church where Billy Graham uh, was and has been a lifelong member. And I'm pretty sure that Criswell changed his views after this, but this is something he said in 1956. He told the South Carolina legislature so he's speaking to state authorities here, that he not only strongly favored racial segregation, but that it would be best for religious groups to stick with their own kind. He suggested that the few blacks who desired to integrate with white churches and those he observed of them, a few who did, he said, let them integrate, let them sit up there in their dirty shirts and make all their fine speeches, but they're all a bunch of infidels dying from the neck up. In another address, Criswell suggested that integration was a thing of idiocy and foolishness. Now that today probably seems, well, I hope it does, extreme. It's hard to see such things or hard to, to imagine that such things would be said in churches, although perhaps I noticed that one or two people are lining up with BMP uh, uh, um, politicians and perhaps that's the sort of thing they would say as well. Now, the problem is, we human beings instinctively divide. We just do it. We mix with those like us, and we keep out those like them. It's us and them, always. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's going to be something. Us and them. The in crowd, the outsiders. The nice clique, the, the, the great unwashed out there. Now, we've seen that already in the book of Acts, funny enough. When right at the very beginning of the church, there were tensions within the first believers over racial lines, despite all that they had in common, being Jewish, being converted to following Jesus, being part of the same church, we find that uh, Jewish believers divided on racial terms. So you had the Hebrew Jewish believers and the Grecian Jewish believers, and the Grecian Jewish widows uh, were being left out of the food distribution. Racial terms, racial lines. There have been some who try to justify their prejudices because of God. They do it on theological grounds, as we've already seen. seen. Uh, but the difficulty, actually, is that in biblical terms, and for centuries, it actually looked as though such a justification was itself justified. This is one of the problems. Because if you think about it, God revealed the law to Moses... And the law was quite clear that his people should be holy. Holy means set apart for me, for, for God. Be set apart, be different. Different from all the other nations. The people who live in the land that you're about to possess. Separate from them. Be separate from the Gentiles. Don't even have them in your home. Let alone share a meal with them. That was God's idea. Quite curious, isn't it? And what we will see in this morning's uh, chapters is that it will take miracles of God to see that change. God, yes, had his purposes, but they were for a time, for a period, to flag up something bigger that God was going to do throughout the world. And basically we've seen, haven't we, as we've gone through these first chapters of Acts, that basically it is about the momentum of God's gospel going global. And if that is to happen, then we've got to break out of this Jewish clique. That's the challenge now. We've got to break out of this Jewish clique, these boundaries that were set up by God, but temporarily. And what I think we'll find is a story of four amazing conversions over these chapters. 
We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but we're going to see four amazing conversions. And the gospel starts rippling out, and we saw this uh, yesterday. It's as a result of persecution. So basically, the focus for the whole church had been one place, Jerusalem. Remember, Luke is teaching geographical theology. So, so far, we've been focused on Jerusalem. And, you know, people from around about, the villages around in Judea, they've sort of come into Jerusalem every now and then. And, um, uh, and they've seen what's going on, and some of them have been converted. They've gone back to their villages and so on. But what we see now is that basically the gospel breaks out. And it's driven by persecution. Basically, there you can see on the map the two boundaries of the nation of Israel after it was divided after Solomon's reign. Do you remember that the, the two kingdoms were split? And... Um, and basically, those were the boundaries of the old uh, kingdoms of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And what we find in Acts 8 is racial breakout. Someone described, one commentator have described, uh, has described the Samaritan converts as sort of semi-detached Christians. Because basically, they, they've got somewhere, but they don't have the whole uh, the whole story yet. And basically, it's a very strange story because Philip goes to Samaria and remarkable things happen, but it seems as if it's not quite enough. And the apostles have to be sent up from Jerusalem, and you can see that in chapter 8, verse 14, uh, following. Uh, Peter and John go up to Samaria to find out what's going on, and it's all very strange. But the Samaritans, you see, the problem with the Samaritans is that in the sort of most derogatory terms, as far as the Jews were concerned, they were half-breeds. Basically, as a result of the northern kingdom falling to Assyria way back in 722 BC, uh, Assyria had a, a, a sort of enforced policy of intermarriage and uh, moving peoples all around the world, uh, their empire to sort of basically subdue and uh, keep people quiet. Basically, the Samaritans were, they were just this mingled race. They were not truly sons of Abraham. And they were despised and hated. It's often those who are most like yourself and yet slightly different are the ones that we find hardest to deal with, isn't it? People who are completely different from us, we can, we can almost cope with them much more easily than those who are just slightly different. But we find this strange thing that the, uh, they do not receive the Holy Spirit until verse 17. So they seem to have semi-detached genes and semi-detached conversion. The first thing to notice is that it's not through an apostle, it's through Philip. And we're hot on the heels of Stephen's martyrdom, remember? And it's interesting, isn't it, the, the, the seven deacons were chosen uh, to wait on tables to make sure that the, the, the Grecian converts, uh, Jewish converts, get as, uh, get as much food as their, their Hebrew uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, and these seven were picked to, to do this job. Well, basically, whenever we see these guys in action, mainly Stephen and Philip, they're not doing that at all. They're going around preaching. And Philip ends up going north into Samaria. And it seems that basically he's taking Acts 1, verse 8, seriously. You will take, you will be my witnesses, you will take the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria. The very word probably caused a bit of a lump in the throat for those first believers. The Samaritans? You've got to be kidding. Remember Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan? good Samaritan it's a contradiction in terms and yet there is Philip going up and what's he doing well look at verse 5 Philip went down to a city in Samaria down as in because it's downhill not because it's down the map he went up the map but down the hill and he proclaimed the Christ there he proclaimed the Messiah there well that's interesting isn't it because basically you thought that the Messiah was the Jewish king but he's the Samaritan king as well. He proclaimed the Christ. So it's the same message, at least. That's not what's wrong with what happened with the Samaritans. You know, you could say, well, maybe the apostles had to be go up just because uh, Philip got the message slightly wrong. No, he proclaimed the Christ. That's what everybody else had been doing. 
And in verse 6, we see him doing signs and wonders, and that leads to great joy amongst these Samaritans. So it's not that he's got an inferior ministry to the apostles. It's the same message, it's the same ministry, and the same response. People respond with joy, they're overwhelmed. You mean this is for us as well? This is amazing. And it's interesting, isn't it, that actually it's those signs and wonders that provoke the interest of Simon the sorcerer. That's what got his attention. He said, I want a bit of that. He's impressed. He wants a bit of the action. Not because he wants to know God necessarily, but he's rather impressed with the magic. But in verse 14, the apostles in Jerusalem hear about it. Notice what they hear. They hear that the Samaritans have accepted the word of God. Do you remember this theme of the word growing and spreading? They accepted the word of God, and Peter and John arrived. Now, what strikes me about this is that they seem to think that there's nothing odd about the fact that they've come to pray for the Spirit to come. They see this as something they should be doing, as far as Luke tells us the story. And this provokes Simon the sorcerer's interest even more when, they see, when he sees what the apostles get up to. He sees the Spirit's power given to other people, and he's heartily rebuked. Your motives are up the spout. What do we make of all this? Well, it is a momentous event. It warrants apostolic endorsement. It warrants it needs the apostles to come up from Jerusalem, not because Philip got it wrong, not because he got the message wrong or that he did it the wrong way or that somehow his miracles were slightly below par. No, it's nothing to do with that. They are needed because this was a watershed. This is the first time that the gospel has formally crossed racial boundaries. As Jesus said it would in Acts 1. So now, Samaritan believers are included with Jewish believers into one body. We don't really appreciate how massive, how incredible this was. I mean, for some, you know, as I've said, it was harder for a Jew to have anything to do with a Samaritan than for them to have anything to do with a Gentile. It was just almost one step worse. And do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, the, the, the lawyer who asked Jesus the question about, you know, who is my neighbor and stuff? And the whole parable is, is divided in a, in a brilliant way so that Jesus asks a question at the end, which is different from the one you might expect. It's not... Who is the neighbor, but who was the neighborly one? And you notice that if you go and look at it in Luke's gospel, Luke 10, that basically the lawyer, can, he can't even bring, his, uh, bring himself to the point of mentioning the name. He doesn't say the word Samaritan. He says, oh, well, the, the, the one who helped the guy in the ditch. It's stuck in his throat. But that's interesting, isn't it? Back in Luke 10, it shows that Jesus had this revolution in mind. It wasn't a flash in the pan. It wasn't a mistake. This was actually always part of the purpose. In fact, you can go back to the prophets and see plenty of occasions where actually the prophets look forward to the day when the north kingdom and the south kingdom will be reunited as one kingdom under the king of David. Which is why Philip goes to Samaria and proclaims the Christ the one the prophets spoke about, the one who would bring the peoples back together into one kingdom. But it's not quite the kingdom you expect. It's not the sort of kingdom that gets represented at the United Nations. And basically, they receive this with great joy after the apostles have come. And there are all kinds of extraordinary things. And they're sort of speaking in tongues and full of all kinds of joy and, and uh, wonder at what is going on. You see, it's not just vertical inclusion that's going on. It's not just that they have been included by God and his king. But now they are included horizontally with their Jerusalem believers. And Peter and John, do you see this in verse 25? They proclaimed the word of the Lord and they returned to Jerusalem, but on the way they preached the gospel to many Samaritan villages. They carried on this work. 
Now, the big question, you have this, just to sum it up, you have the situation, Philip goes to Samaria, uh, he tells the gospel, he proclaims the Christ, he does various miracles, and people believe, they accept the word of God, uh, but there's something missing, well, it's the Holy Spirit that's missing, so the, the, the apostles, uh, Peter and John, have to come up from Jerusalem to see what's going on, they pray, the apostles pray over these people, and the Holy Spirit comes. It looks like a double conversion, doesn't it? Converted to Jesus, converted to the Spirit. So the big question ever since this passage has been, is this normative? In other words, is this the way things should be? Do you need a second conversion, or sometimes as it's called, a second blessing? And that's been a question down the centuries. And denominations divide over that question. Well, we've got to grasp Luke's purpose, I think, to see, uh, to see uh, uh, what he's doing. And we can see that by looking at what happens next. So the second conversion is the Ethiopian. And I call this 15 minutes of flame, fame because basically we hardly know anything about him before or since. He's a sort of bit part, but a very important one, nevertheless. Now, in the ancient world, eunuchs could become incredibly important and influential people. They were usually slaves who had been castrated and then highly educated because they were regarded as supremely trustworthy. They're not going to go running after your wife. That was the theory. And in fact, around the time when the Ethiopian was traveling to Jerusalem, the emperor in Rome was Claudius. Uh, if you've uh, ever seen or read uh, Robert Graves' I, Claudius, uh, two novels and, and the TV adaptation, adaptation. Um, Claudius was the emperor at this time, and during his reign, the two most powerful people in the Roman Empire were his eunuch secretaries, Pallas and Narcissus. They basically ran the show. They were remarkable men. Now, we're not told much about why this man, who worked for Candace, queen of Ethiopia, uh, had gone to Jerusalem in Acts 8, except that we're told that he went there to worship, which is quite a striking thing. Now, was he Jewish diaspora? In other words, was he someone of Jewish descent who had, uh, you know, after the Babylonian exile, scattered? Uh, or perhaps he was known as what was, uh, he was what was known technically as a God-fearer, you know, a Gentile who uh, was an alien brought into the camp, as it were, and was someone who worshipped God. But it's interesting, though, because you see, even though he'd gone up to Jerusalem... He was an outsider on practically every count. I mean, it can't have been particularly comfortable for him in Jerusalem. I mean, you just read uh, Leviticus, and it's quite clear that uh, if you were a eunuch, uh, you couldn't be a priest, uh, because under the law's eye, you were, in some form or another, you were somehow seen to be defective. Uh, you couldn't join the temple assembly. You can see that in, in um, Deuteronomy 23 is rather a grisly verse. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Mm, Not a particularly pleasant thought. And foreigners, well, if you're foreign, you can't draw close. Deuteronomy is quite clear throughout it. There are a couple of laws, for instance, I've quoted there, that um, set standards for how the people of Israel were to deal with outsiders. And it seems very often there was one law for the insider and one law for the outsider. The distinctions went deep, and they were God-given. But the point is that this man is an outsider in pretty much every way. He might have—he uh, was foreign. He was probably Gentile. He's a eunuch. But he's an outsider more significantly for the story's purpose is that he's reading the Bible, but it doesn't make sense. He's got the Bible in front of him. He was obviously quite wealthy because, you know, not everybody, in fact, very, very few people could own manuscripts of the Bible text. You certainly didn't have the whole thing in your hands and carry it around on your chariot. I suppose you'd need about sort of 10 trailers to carry a full Bible set. She was obviously pretty well-to-do. To to have any part of the Bible of your own was quite special. And basically, he's an outsider because he's reading this thing and he doesn't get it. And miraculously, God is the one who takes the initiative to get Philip, this guy he's used up in Samaria, the one who's been pushing the boundaries, he takes Philip to go and meet the Ethiopian. 
And he overhears the eunuch reading. And I say overhear deliberately because, of course, in the ancient world, people read out loud. When you were reading to yourself, you read out loud. And look what he's reading. Isaiah 53. Who says the book of Acts says little about the cross? Philip has proclaimed the Christ. And we're not told all the details. In fact, we're told very few details of the sermons in Acts, are we? We've seen that again and again. But uh, here we find him proclaiming the Christ, yes, who suffered the Christ on the cross. That Isaiah clearly, sparklingly clearly pointed forward to. He proclaims the suffering Christ. And look what happens. He gets baptized. Here's an old Ethiopian manuscript of Philip baptizing the eunuch. I just wonder whether or not he had the whole of Isaiah in his chariot, maybe. Or certainly perhaps the last chapters of Isaiah. If he just read on two or three chapters to Isaiah 56... You might want to just turn to that, would you? Isaiah 56. Verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. That's just where he's been coming from, isn't it? The temple. The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. No. You can come in too. Inclusion was always part of God's plan. You see, these racial boundaries were a temporary principle in order to make it very clear that actually God expected a lifestyle that was different from the world around. Inclusion was part of God's plan. But then Philip disappears. And so does the Ethiopian eunuch. It's all very strange. He presumably goes home to Ethiopia and uh, legend has it that he was the one who planted the Ethiopian church. And there have been Christians in Ethiopia ever since. Fantastic. Well, why is this significant? Well, as we compare the two, you see, <laughs> Philip's not an apostle. And what's interesting is that immediately after the Samaritan's conversion, we have the Ethiopian conversion, and this second conversion doesn't need apostolic endorsement. Do you notice that? Peter and John don't need to go to Ethiopia or catch up with him on the way home to check that this is okay. No, presumably it's okay. Now in the, in the diagrams booklet, if you turn to page six. Oh, no, you don't. It's gone. That's a bit of a blow. Page. Yes, that would be the one. Thank you very much. We find that there are similarities between what happens. It's the bottom page eight. There we are. Uh, similarities between what happens to the Samaritans and to uh, the Ethiopian. Philip is the one doing it. Uh, there's baptism going on. The first time is Samaria. The apostles arrive and pray for the Holy Spirit to come, and he comes. The second time, Philip disappears, and so does the Ethiopian. No apostles. Do you see, immediately that throws up the fact that actually what happened the first time doesn't necessarily have to be repeated in every sense. 
It doesn't have to be normative in all its details. Now, in the seminar tonight on the Holy Spirit, we'll think a bit more about what that uh, means. But just notice that there is a difference there. And I think Luke is deliberately giving it to us. Presumably, perhaps, there's no need for a two-tier conversion for everybody. There's no mention of it with Ethiopian. Well, thirdly, we come to the third conversion. We heard this a bit about it in our reading earlier, and that's the Pharisee, who's converted from being a persecutor to being a preacher. He's the last person you'd expect. He's the last person the early church expected. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Ananias is, is, you know, he's scratching his head, said, Lord, look, you've got to be joking, not this guy. (laughs) You know, it's a slightly dangerous thing to say when God tells you to do something. Say, no, no, Lord, you've got it wrong. (laughs) No, no, Lord, haven't you heard reports about this one? No, I've heard reports. Let me let you in on this. Look, you know, I've heard many reports about all this uh, that this man has done, all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Lord, are you, you serious? He's come here with authority. Why has he come here? To arrest me and people like me. You've got to be kidding. And yet he's the one that God has his finger on. What happened here to Saul would have a profound impact on everything. Not that it just happened to him. In terms of his own memory, his mission, his theology. And actually, you cannot understand Paul's letters until you understand his Damascus Road experience. So much of what he teaches in his letters flows out of his conversion experience. Not that he thinks that everybody has to have the same. But that it helps to understand his sort of mentality. And you think, you know, he was a guy, I mean, can you imagine? He knew what he'd done. Wasn't that partly why he said, and I'm the chief of sinners. I wanted to wipe this all out. Don't you think I don't know about grace? Can you begin to see why grace is so important for his message? Because he utterly depended on it himself. Page 9 in the color booklets, this is one of the mysteries of the book of Acts. We mentioned this on the first morning, but isn't it odd? You know, we've seen how selective Luke is throughout. We've seen how few things we get told. And yet Luke wastes three scrolls of manuscript to tell the same story three times. And you notice on page 9 of the diagrams booklet, you have three accounts of Paul's conversion. The first one is Luke's account, and then the second and third are Paul himself describing what happened. And, of course, there are a lot of similarities. Of course there are. I mean, you know, it's the same event. It's the same place. It's the same road to Damascus. Uh, he's going there for the same reason. Three times we're told. Three times we're told I was going there to persecute, to arrest, to jail. Presumably, after the death of Stephen, he had tip-offs about where they were going. He'd heard that, you know, after Acts, 1 versus, uh, Acts 8, 1 and 2, you know, the people scattered, and he had his informers who told them which directions, which gate of Jerusalem they left out of. Ah, oh, yes, I've heard a few have gone up to Damascus. I'd better go there and chase them down and bring them back and bring them to justice or righteousness. And he has the same experience. Here's the Lego Saul getting converted. The blinding light. And he gets the same question from Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 4. Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, I suppose one of the most galling, painful things for Saul was that Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of the cosmos, took it personally. Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you doing these people in, why are you arresting them and so on. No, no, why are you persecuting me? You're offending me. You're you're wounding and harming me. Because, of course, it was an attack on Jesus. 
I guess Paul had been pretty chuffed that Jesus had been executed. No doubt he was in Rome during the time of the, the, the Passover and the crucifixion. I guess he was one of the many who thought, yes, justice has been done. This is the righteous thing to do, to kill, to stone, to execute a blasphemer. So it was personal, but of course it goes bigger than that. And this, again, helps us to understand Paul's theology in his letters. Why do you persecute me, as in the church, because the church is my body? My body, which now includes Samaritans and a certain Ethiopian civil servant. And Ananias, Ananias can't quite believe it. Notice how in Acts 22, you see in the middle column, Ananias in, in 22 verse 12 is described as a devout and respected observer of the law. Do you remember Paul is defending himself? And we saw uh, yesterday or the day before or whenever it was that basically the accusations against Stephen were that he spoke against the law and this place, the temple. And we saw that actually as Paul has to defend his ministry later on, he has to defend himself against speaking against the law, the temple, and Caesar. And he mentions here Ananias, who was a devout observer of the law. Because you see, these early believers, they were Jewish. They saw no contradiction with their Jewish heritage. Now, why do you think Luke tells this story three times? I mean, what about all the other stories? I mean, I'd love to know what Matthew got up to, wouldn't you? Or Bartholomew, or James. What did they get up to? I'm sure they had some great stories. Don't you think? Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear what happened? And, you know, there were the sort of legends of those who got to India and North Africa and all over the place, you know, into sort of Iran, Persia, and way beyond there. Wouldn't it be fascinating to find out about those? Why do we have this story three times? Well, remember where we are. Samaritans have been converted, and the apostles have endorsed that. The Spirit has come, and an Ethiopian God-fearer has been converted, and something extraordinary is happening. There's a rumbling in the ground as the God is on the move, the God of the cosmos. And the key to understanding why we get this three times is in chapter 9, verse 15, what Jesus says to Ananias. This man is a chosen instrument to carry my name to Gentiles and kings and before Israel. It's not that Israel is somehow bypassed now. Yes, they are still very much part of it. But now he's the one who's to carry my name, the name of the Lord, the king, to Gentiles. And Saul picks that up as he speaks about it later on in chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. He's chosen, uh, he, uh, the God of the fathers has chosen you to know his will, that is Paul. See uh, the righteous one and hear his words, and you'll be his witnesses to all men of what you've seen and heard. So do you remember, back in chapter 1, who were the ones who were chosen as apostles? Well, those who have been witnesses from the beginning. Paul is saying, yes, I have been a witness too. I have met with the resurrected Christ. Because that was another requirement for being an apostle. I've met the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road, and he's chosen me to be one of my witnesses. I notice in 22 that he uses the term the righteous one. Does that ring bells? It's what Stephen, in his speech in Acts 7, called the Christ, the righteous one. Here is Paul defending his ministry to uh, Jerusalem people and authorities doing exactly the same thing that Stephen did and proclaiming the Christ, the righteous one, the one who uniquely kept the law and was righteous. And then, I suppose, one of the most difficult, painful things for Saul was chapter 9, verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How the tables have turned. The persecutor becomes the persecuted preacher. But I guess 
as he went from town to town, and we'll see this extraordinary work tomorrow as he breaks into Europe with the gospel. He knows that suffering is part of the job. Jesus told him from the beginning. You know, no trades descriptions acts here. He was told from the beginning what he was being let in for. I think, and I know I'm not alone, that the reason we have this three times is because this is integral to the purpose of God's gospel going global. Not exclusive to Saul or Paul as he would become. He's not the only one. And he would have many others that he would train up. And we know that the other apostles were doing this as well, as we'll see in just a moment. But that he was the pioneer. He was the thinker, the missiologist, the one who really thought through what it would take to get the gospel outside these racial boundaries. He was the one who was going to have to argue the case at the Council of Jerusalem. He was the one who was going to have to think about what it needed to bring the gospel to Corinth. And Corinth presented many challenges. It would take a man of Paul's courage, stature, and intellect to be able to work out how to handle that. And we thank God for that. Because we just have to read First and Second Corinthians to see how we begin to think about reaching a city like London. But before we move on, let's just focus on one final little phrase. And it only comes once in chapter 26. Verse 14, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's a very odd phrase. But it suggests something rather remarkable. It suggests that Jesus had been on Saul's case for rather a while. Knocking. There'd been this niggling doubt in the back of his mind as he packed his bags to set out for Damascus. There was that little voice in the back of his head that he pushed back. It's so often the case, isn't it? I mean, we meet people who are very hostile to the gospel. And somehow it's almost as if their fury and hostility is intensified by this horrible little suspicion in the back of their minds that it just might be true. Have you noticed that? There just might be something in this. And the way they suppress that horrible suspicion is to suppress the people who believe it. Do you remember the poem, The Hound of Heaven? A remarkable poem written by Francis Thompson in 1909. And it's uh, basically about uh, God being on a man's case. This is what the, he said in the poem. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistered hopes I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat these feet, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. And yet it just captures God's wonderful patience, you see, with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. If God's on somebody's case, how hard it is to kick against the goads. But perhaps for our purposes, I think the most moving moment in the whole story in Acts 9 comes in verse 17. When Ananias utters words that I guessed he never dreamt of saying, Brother Saul. 
He's part of the family now. Isn't that special? Can you imagine what it must have been like for this blinded man to hear those words? Brother Saul. He belongs. He's in. A persecutor is in. We've had Samaritans in. We've had an Ethiopian eunuch in. We've had a persecuting Pharisee in. Is there no limit to this reckless inclusion? Whatever next? Well, we come to our fourth conversion. And it's not quite the conversion you might expect. It's the story of Cornelius' conversion, yes. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily Luke's primary concern. Of course, he's concerned about Cornelius, and he's jolly pleased that he's converted. I'm not saying that. But it's a wonderful moment because, you see, I think that the main conversion Luke wants us to get is Peter's. That Peter gets converted to God's expanding hospitality. I mean, in some ways, it's strange that Peter needs to learn this in Acts 10 and 11, isn't it? You know, he spent three years with Jesus, and the preparations have been made. And one of the concerns in Luke's gospel that, that we see continued in the book of Acts, and once you see it, you see it everywhere on every page of Luke's gospel, he's concerned for how Jesus deals with the outsider, the women, the shepherds, the, 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 the sinners, the tax collectors, the Gentiles. It's all there in, in Luke's gospel, in embryonic form. So it's odd that Peter still needs that final shove. But I think that just simply serves to to remind us of how profoundly counterintuitive and radical this was. It's so ingrained. I mean, hospitality hardly seems that controversial, does it? But for a Jew, it was as controversial as it could be. And God intervenes in remarkable, miraculous ways. Cornelius, this Roman soldier, he's a God-fearer, so he's a Gentile, but who already has a profound respect, if not uh, dependence and worship, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So he's, he's pretty unusual. He's not your average sort of common and garden uh, Gentile. Uh, but he's a Gentile nonetheless, and he has an angelic visitation to tell him that some pretty interesting things are about to happen. And Peter, this Jewish apostle, has a divine vision. And he's obviously a bit slow on the uptake because God needs to give him this vision three times. It's the same thing. And then the Spirit commands him in verses 19 and 10, uh, 20 of chapter 10. Now, an indication of how important this event was, again in Luke's narrative, we have the account twice. Where's my coloured booklet gone? It's very odd. Oh, there we are. Turn over to page 10 of the coloured ones. We have the account twice. Luke's narrative and then Peter telling it to the others. It's around the same time he's praying. Uh, Cornelius, uh, Peter's praying and he has this... Uh, uh, moment where he's feeling a bit peckish and he, you know, obviously when you're feeling hungry it's hard not to think of food. I mean, we've all had that in quiet times and stuff, you know, if you get up early enough and you haven't had breakfast yet it's very hard to think about anything other than what you're about to eat. Have you found that when you're praying? Well, you know, God is sovereign and he uses even those moments of uh, rumbling tummies to make a the- theological point and that's what happens with Peter. He sees this sheet let down from heaven, and the sheet contains four-footed animals, reptiles, birds of the air. Chapter 10, verse 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, surely not, Lord. I've never done such a thing in my life. I've never eaten impure or unclean things. It's a bit like Ananias saying, you mean Saul? You've got to be kidding. You mean eat this stuff? You've got to be joking. Verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made. Now, this picks up something Jesus has said back in Mark 7. Jesus declared all foods clean because what comes out of a man is what makes him clean, not what goes into a man is what makes him clean. And chapter 10, verse 16, we're told this happened three times. And then he tells the story again later. I was praying in Joppa and had a trance and saw a vision, saw a sheet. Get up and kill 
and the same message. But actually, what's interesting is that uh, you see in chapter 10, verse 15, chapter 11, verse 9, the same message. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. But Luke, to make the point even stronger, have a look at 10:28. God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. And then just a few verses later, 10.34, I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, notice, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Are you getting the point yet? Peter's getting it. After being hit over the head with a sledgehammer because he's a bit slow. This was controversial. It would need explanation, as we see in chapter 11, as he has to tell what the Jerusalem church what God is up to. But the important thing is that we see now a full complement of God's plan. Hebrew Jewish believers, Grecian Jewish believers, Samaritan believers, Gentile believers. And Peter baptizes Cornelius. There is no barrier whatsoever to the gospel. Now, just in the last five minutes, we're going to move very fast now. But what we see as things follow is basically this is a watershed moment for the wider church to understand. Peter's been converted to the sense that God's hospitality extends beyond racial boundaries. And what we find is sort of what I've called sort of advancing diffusion. In other words, the church is growing more diffuse as it spreads out. It's united under Christ, of course, but, but what we see is that the church becomes more and more diverse, and this brings new challenges and new questions, of course. But what is interesting is that we find another city becomes almost as important as Jerusalem. That's quite striking, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that actually there wasn't anything inherent in Jerusalem being the world HQ for this. And we find that Antioch becomes another center. I thought I'd show you a couple of holiday snaps. Well, no, I wasn't on holiday. I was working very hard um, two months ago. That's Antioch now. And basically, it's a relatively small town. And those hills, obviously, exactly as Paul would have known it on the river Orontes. But Antioch becomes a key church center. And it becomes a par with Jerusalem when you can see that, that actually when there were problems and you have this prophecy by Agabus and talks about the famine and so on, the Antioch church starts helping out the Jerusalem church and they send some money and support. And do you remember how that principle of loving the brothers and sisters across national boundaries and around the world was integral actually even to Paul's ministry? So he would travel around Greece, he'd get, see people converted and he'd say, right, okay, help the brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. And so he'd take a collection. And that was actually very important to his work. Because it's a sign that we belong to one another. Just as in Acts 2 and 4, there was no one in the brotherhood in Jerusalem who was in need. So that same principle expanded, it's extended around the world as the church. God's Christ body gets bigger and bigger. But there is still this mutuality and caring for one another. So that there might have been people in Corinth who had a bit of cash. And they could help out their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were struggling to eat. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 9. We find that there are fresh realizations. We find that uh, the big enemy, Herod, is no ultimate threat in the end. He struggles to try and suppress uh, Christianity because he sees it's politically expedient as a way of getting friends amongst the Jewish uh, people who regard him as racially impure and therefore not really their king. And so he thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll persecute the Christians. That'll make them happy. And uh, we find that uh, James, in chapter 12, verse 2, the brother of John, was put to death with the sword. It's interesting. We don't know anything else about that. I'm sure he preached before it. I'm sure he had lots of very important things to say, just like Stephen did, but we're not told, because it's not part of this purpose of seeing how God's gospel went global. And we find that Peter doesn't go the same way. He's got a few more years yet. He's miraculously released from prison. And... uh, Herod executes the guards for letting Peter go, but he himself is executed. But notice chapter 12, verse 25. Uh, 24, sorry. 
the word of God continued to increase and spread. The rumbling continues. And there are fresh initiatives. Barnabas and Saul, who is becoming Paul, are sent off by Antioch on their first missionary journey, which is basically through south-central Turkey. Um, and uh, off, the, off they go. So, so basically, Antioch, it, it, Jerusalem sent out missionaries because they were being persecuted. Antioch realizes, hmm, this is a good idea. Let's send people out and commission them. But of course, with this rapid growth comes the big question, what do we do with the Gentiles who are converted? What about those exclusion laws? What about the big segregation that you have in the law? That was God's idea. It's not because God was racist. We've already seen that he's far from that. But there was still the problem of the law and the Gentiles. And that basically was, you know, sort of epitomized by the issue of circumcision. Should men who get converted to Christ from a Gentile background get circumcised? And that brings Acts 15. After the first missionary journey, people are being converted. Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, the senior Christian leaders meet there to talk about this. Just as they'd found out about Samaria and wanted to know what was going on, sent Peter and John to find out. Now it's going across the Gentile world. They meet together in Jerusalem and say, what do we do now? There they are. Well, they discuss it. They notice that God is at work. They notice that actually the Spirit is bringing people to him and that food is okay. So notice when they write this letter to send to all the, Jewish uh, the Gentile converts, there's no pork ban. They just say don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality is an issue because they know what the reputation of the Gentile world was like. You just have to go to Corinth and see how grim it was. No, keep away from sexual immorality. That would become a big issue in Corinth, obviously. But the crucial thing is, and we see this in 1511 and 1518, that they see that Gentile converts are on the same level as Jewish. 1511, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. We're on a level playing field. The ground before the cross is flat, whether you're circumcised or not. And I take it that those Lego men there who are jumping for joy and jolly, please, uh, they're Gentiles because they've realized they don't need to get circumcised. So that's a great relief. The scene is set now for more adventurous mission. The Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem, again, is a key staging post on God's gospel going global. But as I close, I've talked to one or two people in All Souls from uh, ethnic minorities and just asked them about how well we do on our diversity relations. I'm not being politically correct here. I'm simply trying to live the biblical church life. This is not political correctness. This is discipleship and gospel imperative. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We're all in the same boat. And uh, just a number of people I talked to just came up with these things, and maybe you can discuss this in your groups. But a number of areas have been raised. Uh, one person said, people never ask me about where I'm from or my background or what my culture does. They assume that because they're in London, they'll assimilate and do what we do in London. Well, yeah, there's a sense in which if you go to another place, you've got to d fit in. And, you know, if I, if, when I lived in Uganda for four years, I had to work very hard to, to not be culturally insensitive. So there is a responsibility for all of us to be aware of our cultural differences. And people who come to London and come to England have to deal with that, just as if when I went to Kampala, I had to do that. But there is a sense in which, in a diverse church like ours, 
We've got to take seriously our cultural differences and glory in them. And, and, and that's what happened at Pentecost, isn't it? The, the, the believers, uh, the, the, the people who heard uh, Peter explain it and heard uh, the, the, the others uh, speaking in tongues, they heard in their own language because God was interested in reaching them in their language. So be interested in other people's cultures. I remember um, uh, Rachel used to talk about she grew up in Africa until she was 18. And in many ways, she was a sort of third culture kid, didn't quite fit in Africa, didn't quite fit in Britain. But I remember because she was white and she was training um, at the London Hospital, uh, one of her best friends was a Ugandan black girl, another nurse. And she used to find it really hard that everyone would ask um, this friend of hers about Uganda and what it was like there. And and, and Rachel would think, well, they never asked me. I was born in Uganda. I lived in Kenya and Malawi. That's where I'm from too. No one asked me about that. No, be interested. Enjoy our differences. Find out about them. Revel in them. Don't let them divide us. They mustn't become more important than Christ. And every race needs to hear that. Don't kid yourself that it's only white people who can be racist. But let's glory in our differences and enjoy them. Sometimes they're funny. They're quirky. Great. (laughs) Secondly, how does the gospel shape and challenge and bring out the best of your own cultures. There will be things that we need to challenge of one another. And sometimes when you're in a different culture, you see the things that need challenging all the more clearly. How does that, how, how about, what, what about of our own cultures does it bring out the best in? Uh, one comment that a number of people made to me, and that is the issue of humor and how we do humor. Humor is a really difficult thing to get right. Obviously, if we're Christian, we, we want to laugh. There's, there's something wonderful about laughter and joy and fun. And that's God-given. But we've got to make sure very, very hard that we remove all malice and cynicism and cruelty from our humor. I don't know, I think that's one, it's probably because I just don't really like it, but that's one of the reasons I don't really like slapstick humor, because it's cruel. It's about humiliating people and laughing in their difficulty. And there are some things about our cultural differences that are funny. And, you know, my Ugandan students used to always poke fun at us Brits for, for various things. Fine. And we can enjoy that. But remove the malice. And remove the stereotypes. Remove the sentences that begin, oh, you people, dot, dot, dot. And then, just to bring it a bit sort of closer to home, who are your friends? Who are the people you have in your home? Who are the people you naturally mix with? Just do a little audit, a friends audit. Are they all the same as you? Now, to be honest, you know, when we were in Uganda, I I was one of only two... uh, foreigners who worked in the Bible college I taught in and um, so basically there were two of us whites and everyone else was African from different African countries that was quite interesting seeing the the challenges of integrating different African cultures in one college we had refugees from Ethiopia and Congo and Rwanda as well as people from Kenya all very different it was just fascinating as an outsider just to see how difficult it was for some of them as well just as, you know, just as we find in Europe and so on. You, uh, that, you don't need me to tell you that. But it was, you know, I used to find that, you know, I worked from, you know, eight till six every day in the college uh, with African brothers and sisters, and I loved it, but by the weekend I was exhausted. I needed to be with some people who were like me. And um, it's not that I didn't want to socialize with anybody else, but it's exhausting crossing, being in a cross-cultural situation the whole time. And so, you know, there were a few of us Brits who used to meet up maybe for a picnic or something on a Saturday, go down to Lake Victoria. Sounds wonderful. It was. And that was fine. But we just got to ask ourselves, are we always in our little clique? Are our friends always just the same as us? Who actually crosses the threshold of our home? What a great opportunity to actually learn from one another and be together and and express this unity in Christ across diversity through our homes. And then finally, if you uh, are not careful, and I find this myself, you know, there are a whole load of assumptions that don't even occur to me. 
because I'm a white European male. It's a caricature, but um, you know, someone once said that if you are a white male, you look in the mirror and you just see yourself. If you're a white female, you look in the mirror and you see yourself as a woman. If you're a black male, you look in the mirror and you see yourself as black. If you're a black female, you look in the mirror and you see yourself as a black woman. Now, the, the, the point of that is that, you know, there are certain groups, there are certain people who, you know, are not at the top of the pile or whatever. And if you're at the top of the pile, you don't even, it doesn't even occur to you that you're at the top of the pile. It just, you know, that's just the way it is. But if you're not at the bottom, at the top of the pile, you're aware that there are plenty of people on top of you. And basically, perhaps you're down there because of these certain factors of who you are. So those of us who are at the top of the pile need to be very conscious of the fact that for whatever reason, we're at the top of the pile and there are people who are not. Does that sort of make any kind of sense? We've just got to be aware of our assumptions about who we are and where we're from and how we treat one another. I would be, well, I can't imagine that anyone here would concur, um, concur with W.A. Criswell I mentioned at the beginning and his need to keep the, the races from mingling. We're a testimony of the fact that that's not what we think because we are very diverse, just looking even here at Gornerstone. Fabulous but we've got to work hard. We've got to work hard because we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as everybody can be and is. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Hallelujah.